Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and this can be found on page 1064 in the Church Bibles. Page 1064. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. And if I may just begin by adding my welcome to that of Ben's from earlier. It's a bank holiday weekend. It's a lovely opportunity, isn't it? A bank holiday. We just to come to church on a Sunday evening and feel so relaxed, knowing that we've got tomorrow just to, just to be and enjoy. Um, if you're here staying on holiday, then uh, let me tell you, the Peak District is as beautiful as they say, and so do take advantage of, advantage of it. And, uh, you know, we come and we gather around God's Word this evening, and that very much, as Ben has reminded us, has been the kind of heartbeat, I would suggest, of us as a church. Almost we got to the place where there's nowhere else to look, as we were reminded this morning of Christ on his throne. Well, this evening we'll see something of the gentleness of Christ, the humanity of Christ. The two, both morning and evening, they sit well together. So before we actually look at this passage, can I invite you just to join me for a short prayer? Father, we are mindful that there really is nowhere else to turn but to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for each one of us this evening, wherever we are on our faith journey, that you would help us to see you and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Ben said, we begin a new series this evening from the Gospel of John, and we join Jesus at chapter 2 at a wedding. Now, weddings are happy occasions. They're joyous occasions, aren't they? Because, you know, you, you know that you gather as the, the bride and the groom, they gather with their friends and, 
and, and their family. They're, they're surrounded by all the people that they love and care for. And if you're a, a bride or a groom, you know, it's the best of any occasion. You're marrying your best friend. But weddings, actually, if you think about the number of weddings that you've been to over the years, they're actually remembered for one of two reasons. Either it's a great party or something goes terribly wrong. Now, I was speaking at a wedding a few years back of very good friends, and the bride was due to arrive at 11.30 a.m. At 12.55 p.m., nearly one and a half hours, she had not arrived. Let me tell you, the groom was sweating it. You see, he was marrying a girl from a different culture. And he was learning to roll with her culture's time the difficult way. Now, I'm sure that he knew that she was coming. But with every minute that passed, my fears were growing. At 1 p.m., she arrived. And you should have seen the relief on the groom's face. There's a picture and let me tell you, she strolled down that aisle without a care in the world. There was whooping and there was clapping and the party certainly had begun. Now the reality is it was never going to be a disaster. But the wedding in this story before us this evening could really end in disaster. And interestingly, that the wedding comes at the end of the opening week of Jesus's ministry. Now what I'd love to encourage you to do as we look in the next sort of six weeks at John chapter 2 to John chapter 4 is to read those chapters for yourselves. What I'd like to do just very briefly is give you an introduction to them. Now I'd love you to note, if you just turn over a page backwards, I note there in, in John chapter 1 that John carefully, note how he carefully counts down the days. You'll see there verse 19 of chapter 1, that's the first day, day one. And of course, the first day in the, in the Jewish week was a Sunday. And then chapter one again, verse 29, the next day. So we now have a Monday. Then verse 35, that's a Tuesday. We're going through Jesus' first week of ministry. Then verse 43, that's the fourth day. That's Wednesday. And then you see in the chapter that we're looking at tonight, chapter two, verse one, the wedding takes place three days after on the seventh day of the week. The wedding takes place on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. And it seems here that John is setting up his gospel as a retelling of creation week. He's teared us up already in John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, uh, was with God, and the Word was God. And it appears that John wants, to, to, wants us to, to see that Jesus fills out, if you like, the, the creation story, that he is uh, the fulfillment of the creation narrative, that he is the Lord, if you like, of creation, the Lord of the Sabbath, the fulfillment of all that the Sabbath points to, of that eternal rest. And it's a story in Genesis that begins with a marriage. And at the end in Revelation, it ends with the marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And here we find before us this evening in John chapter 2, another marriage. 
And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, we've seen not only Jesus and his disciples are there, but also his mother too. It's probably the wedding of a, of a relative, a, a, a close friend. And in those days, weddings would often last as, as long as a week. And, and the whole community would turn out for them. It's a major event. And the financial burden for the, for the wedding uh, rested on the shoulders of the groom, not on the father of the bride. Now, what was the disaster? We find that in verse 3. The wine had run out. Now, in a shame culture like this, this, this is terrible. See, there is every possibility the groom and his bride will never live this down. It will bring humiliation on them at the beginning of their marriage and on their extended family. It will strip away all the joy from the day. And let me pause and just ask the question, what do we mean by shame? And so I've, jotted up, I've dropped up there a definition. Let me just read this definition to you. I know the writing's quite small, but let me, let me read it to you. This is a definition of shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. And here we see that this groom was nearly exposed and humiliated. He was nearly found out for his poor wedding planning. And yet what we will see in our story is that Jesus covered over his shame. Now I imagine, I don't know all of you that well yet, but I imagine that many of us carry shame, carry feelings of guilt, Maybe it's for something that we've done. Maybe we, we did it a long time ago in our past. Maybe it's something that we've done quite recently. And maybe we live with the fear of being found out for those sinful habits or behaviors that however hard we try, we still can't conquer them. Or maybe this evening we carry shame for something done to us. Or with something that we're associated with. And if this evening you are feeling something of that shame or guilt, if those feelings are stripping away your joy, then let me, let me invite you to come and enter into the story of this wedding. Come, why not, in your imagination. Come as a, come as a guest to this wedding party because what you'll find is if you come willingly you'll find that Jesus offers to cover your shame to bring healing to bring comfort to bring restoration to bring satisfaction where there has only been dissatisfaction to restore true joy so let's just back up and look more closely at how Jesus saves the bridal couple's day and notice first only Jesus can truly satisfy. Now, some of you know that I've had a, a few days away. I've been driving on our, Naomi and I have been on our bikes, and we've been cycling down the River Thames, and that has given me plenty of time to think. And I've been puzzling, particularly over these verses in 3 and 4, and this sort of awkward exchange between Jesus and his mother. It's really quite fascinating. 
And it may be, I imagine, that, that Mary is sort of helping out with the catering at this wedding, and, and she looks, when the disaster arises, she looks to the resourcefulness of her older son, saying, verse 3, Jesus, they have no more wine. They've run out of wine. And then we get this very peculiar reply from Christ. But before we look at that, it's important to understand the symbolism of wine at a Middle Eastern wedding in those days. You see, it stood for far more than having a good time. There was a rabbinical statement from the time which says, where there is no wine, there is no joy. You see, the running out of wine not only marks the end of the wedding, but the end of joy. And Jesus here seems rather bemused by his mother's request. And we see this, don't we, in his immediate response. Verse 4, woman. Now, there's no insult meant by that address, just an expression of mild agitation. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. It seems, doesn't it, that Jesus here is deep in his own thoughts, reading more into the wine running out than Mary actually meant. It's a very odd reply. Now, Jesus, will you, will you help? Will you help with this problem? It's not yet my time to help. Look, the party is about to be ruined, and it is not your time to be helped, to help. Well, Jesus seems somewhat distracted, don't you agree? His answer suggests that he has thoughts on a bigger problem. It seems that Jesus is present at the wedding, but not present. The occasion of the wedding has almost certainly, you see, triggered other thoughts and other reflections. And the clue to what he is thinking is given in this cryptic reply. My hour has not yet come. And actually in John's gospel, the use of Jesus, whenever he uses the phrase, my hour, always speaks of his death. You can see that, for example, in chapter 12, verse 23. So Jesus is thinking about his death. You know, a wedding can be, can't it, quite a lonely and a thoughtful time. For some, it's not the easiest of occasions, actually, often. And it would appear so for Jesus. You know, weddings can often stir within us, can't they? Deep thoughts, they can expose our, our longing for happiness. They can evoke feelings of loneliness. It can eke out that deep desire for real satisfaction, for a real relationship, as we can so easily be deceived to think that this only exists in marriage. Rico Tice will often say, actually, that the loneliest place in the world is an unhappy marriage. For Jesus, it may well have been a, a moment of feeling lonely. But I want to suggest to you for different reasons. His thoughts were evidently elsewhere. You see, Jesus knows that history will ultimately end at another wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it seems that Jesus' thoughts 
provoked by this wedding, have been transported forward. He sits reflecting at this wedding party, thinking about his hour, thinking of the price that he will have to pay in order to invite people like you and me to the ultimate wedding party. Now, when they're running out of wine here, there is a metaphor for this life, how nothing can fully satisfy. Now, it's not to say that this world around us isn't good. Yet, like wine, joy always runs out in the end. There's never enough. You know, even in marriage, even in the best marriage, there is a longing in all of us for something more. There is a, a deeper thirst for something other, something transcendent that this world cannot satisfy. And Jesus knows this. And he thinks and he reflects. He knows that only he can satisfy that deep spiritual thirst that we all have. Now look, there's a quote I'd just like to, uh, to put up on the screen here by C.S. Lewis, which captures something of this longing. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see, uh, there is nothing in this material world that can fully satisfy. And yet, have you noticed how often we measure joy by our circumstances? I'll be honest with you, I'm certainly guilty of this. Joy comes from the, the situation that we're in or, or the things we have. If things are going well and I have all that I need, I'm happy. The day is good, therefore I am happy. The day is bad, therefore I am unhappy. And Jesus came to show us that we can have joy apart from our circumstances. It's interesting, actually, when you think about it, that it's often in the pursuit of satisfaction in our circumstances that can lead to shame. Think about it. We push too far in our work. Ambition drives us, and we cross a line. We, we break the rules in trying to hit that profit target. We get competitive, and we push someone out of the way. We get caught out, and shame follows. Or the reverse is true. It can be a, a lack of satisfaction in our circumstances that can lead to shame. You know, I can't find satisfaction in that relationship, so I'll turn to porn. Or I'll have an affair. I'll turn to gambling, or to drugs, or some other addiction. See, we too often look for satisfaction in our circumstances, in the things that this world provides, exploring the Peak District. Success in academics, in your career, in your family. And where in life 
this evening, are you trying to find your satisfaction? And Jesus says, whatever it is, you will not find satisfaction there. For the wine will run out. Jesus says, only I can satisfy. So let's look more closely now at how Jesus actually saved the day. We're going to see next that the narrative slows, pausing to provide extraordinary detail and an indication of the importance of where this story lies. So Jesus, we see first, is the only one who satisfies. Let's notice also that Jesus is the only one who can truly save. I wonder how you would answer this question. What do you know of the man called Jesus? And the Gospel of John is an eyewitness account carefully written up to help readers like you and me consider the evidence for Christ. It's why we have this recurring invitation throughout the book, come and see. Come and see for yourself who Jesus is. We have that twice in chapter 1, verse 39 of chapter 1 and verse 46. And John actually gives us his purpose uh, his reason, if you like, for writing more, more fully at the end of the book. And if you've, you've got your Bibles there, I think it's uh, page 1090 in church Bibles. Just turn across, just turn forward to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And we get there very clearly John's reason for writing uh, this account in the first place. So verse 30, we're told there that Jesus performed many other signs. So, verse 31 that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's very clear why he is writing. It's John's purpose in writing this account of Jesus' life, to, to invite each one of us to put our whole trust in Christ, to submit and to trust him, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by trusting in Jesus to have abundant life, life to the full in this life and in the next, and John is saying, Jesus, saying essentially that Jesus essentially performed miracles or signs to reveal his true identity to you and to me. That we may believe and put our faith in him. It's really relatively straightforward. That is the point. That is the purpose. And that is why Jesus is performing these signs. And in verse 11 of our passage, if you turn back, we are told here that this is Jesus' signature sign. It's his first miracle that tells us about who Jesus really is. And it's a miracle, therefore, that really matters. See, he wants to make a, a mark with this one. But why this miracle? There are no casting out of demons. There, no one is healed. No one is walking on water. There's no feeding of the 5,000. Why this one? See, Jesus wants to show something. But what does he want to show us? You see, what he wants to show us is what he is really about. And the way he chose to do this was to create 100 gallons of unusually good wine for a party. Nearly 800 bottles of the finest vintage wine. Now you'll notice 
that Jesus' mother is not willing to take no for an answer. Verse 5, just do what he asks you, she says to the servants. It's a typical mom. Nearby stood six ceremonial washing stone jars, verse 6. Jesus then instructs the servants, verse 7, fill the jars to the brim with water. And they do exactly as instructed. He then says, here's a glass, he passes a glass over. Take a, take a glass full, verse 8, to the master of the banquet. Now you've got to imagine at this point Jesus is now engaged. I, I imagine with all that's happening, he's looking and certainly I can imagine him sitting back and watching with great amusement about what's going to happen next. The master wasn't happy. The master of the banquet is clearly not amused. End of verse 9. So much so that he calls the bridegroom aside and he rebukes him. Verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. What on earth are you playing at? Now why did Jesus start his ministry with this miracle? What is going on here? You know, friends, if we are sitting here this evening scratching our heads and saying, this is kind of strange, why would Jesus choose to make this his first miracle? It shows that we don't know what Jesus is truly about. See, Jesus Christ is the life of the party. Yes, he may well have had his mind on the cross, but he chose a wedding for a reason to do his first miracle. You see, it not only points to the wedding supper of the Lamb, but a wedding is a symbol, isn't it? A symbol of celebration, of laughing, of dancing, of joy. And Jesus says, do you want to know what I am really about? I am the Lord of the feast, the true master of the banquet." The true joy giver. The Lord of creation. You see, when Jesus spoke to that water, it recognized its creator and blushed. I am here, says Jesus. To bring joy where there is no joy. To bring satisfaction where there is no satisfaction. To bring happiness where there is no happiness. To get this party started. But there's still a puzzle. At least there was a puzzle for me as I was looking at this passage. Why did Jesus choose ceremonial washing jars to turn the water into wine? You see... This miracle ultimately points to the means by which Jesus gives this joy. The means by which we receive eternal life. The means by which we receive this invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. See, these ceremonial washing jars are, are purification jars. They're symbolic. And the water in these jars form part of the ceremony that the Israelites had to go through to wash away those deep feelings of shame and guilt caused by their sin. To wash away that, that stuff that stood between them and God. To, to be fully cleansed of those things that stood in the way of a pure and a healthy relationship with others and with God. And yet the truth is all the soap and water in the world could not clean them. 
They needed a stronger detergent. And the water was turned into wine in the purification jars because wine symbolizes and points to Jesus' blood. It points to the new covenant, the new relationship that God is entering into with humanity, sealed by Christ's blood. The new and only way sinners like you and me can be fully cleansed. It is only blood shed that can bring that deep cleansing you see that we need. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, no forgiveness of sins. And you see, as, as the guests are sipping joy, Jesus is sipping sorrow. As he contemplates his future, for he knows what this is going to cost him. Do we know? Do we know that this life really cannot satisfy? Do we know what our Savior did to bring us true satisfaction, true joy, the true possibility of happiness? By dying on the cross for you, for me. Now, a few years back, I had the opportunity to go to a wedding reception at the Langham Hotel, it's, it's a very plush uh, and uh, very delightful hotel. It's, it's just on, on Regent Street. And let me say to you, the surroundings alone were memorable. Opulence personified. But the food. Ooh, it's making me hungry even thinking about it. The food. Seven courses of the finest cuisine. And I can say to you that in every single course, I tasted something I'd not tasted before. Everything about that occasion was extravagant. The bride and the groom, they lavished upon us blessing after blessing. And it was a wedding I will never forget because it was a great party. You know, the miracle that Jesus performs at this wedding is extravagant. It is generous. Jesus lavished his blessing upon this couple. It's not 12 bottles of the finest wine. It's 800. It's a lorry full. See, Jesus is the giver of extravagant gifts. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 10 verse 10, abundantly. Through Jesus, we are filled to the brim. Now, not everybody will recognize who Jesus is and what he offers. Have you? Even this evening, if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, have you, have you realized who he is and what he offers? Do you see him for who he is? Some don't. Notice there, verse 9, the master of the banquet, for example, he didn't. He did not realize where the wine had come from, did he? See, he could only account for the miracle in human terms. He assumed that the, the groom had simply saved the best wine until the end. But the disciples, they did. See, they discerned in this miraculous act the very presence of God. Verse 11, what Jesus did here was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. 
That's the sheer weight and majesty of who Jesus is, the divinity of Christ. And what we see because of this, we're told that the disciples believed in him. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's only son, that he is the Lord and that he died on the cross for their sins. But how, how did the disciples believe? What was their posture? Well, ultimately, they followed the example of Mary. See there, verse 3? Mary, she approaches Jesus as his mother, and she's reproached. You see, even, even his own mother needs to, to bow the knee to King Jesus. But in verse 5, it's a slightly different response. She responds here with faith, with trust as a believer. Do whatever he tells you. At this moment, she puts her faith in Jesus, and her faith is honored. You see, Mary is submitting and trusting. You know, will you do that? Will you come to Jesus this evening submitting and trusting? Are you willing to do what Jesus asks? Have you got to that point when you now know that this life does not satisfy without Jesus? Or maybe over these last few months, you've really lost your way. You've been distracted by the busyness of work, by exams, by, by whatever it is, family circumstances, and you know that you've grown cold and you've grown tired and you've grown weary. And there's that deep longing inside for you to turn to Christ again. Then let me encourage you to hear the invitation that the Word of God offers you here. Come and see. See, God gives abundantly to us. You know, is there a better place to live in the universe than our blue planet? Some might say there's no better place to live in the Euclid than the Peak District. He has blessed us beyond our wildest dreams. But the greatest gift is the gift of his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should receive eternal life this is love not that we love God but that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice you see the wonder and the truth and the mystery of the gospel is that Jesus has reached out and dealt with that guilt and that shame caused by our sin so whatever it is, as we draw to a close and as we prepare our hearts to gather around the communion table, whatever it is that is causing you grief and shame, let me encourage us to bring it to the cross this evening. That sin that you did and you've regretted it ever since, place it at the foot of the cross. That broken relationship, that broken marriage, place it at the foot of the cross. Those lies, that deceit, those things that are troubling you, those things that are haunting you, those things that are keeping you awake at night, those things that you can't reconcile or correct or sort out because it's beyond your power and control, bring them to the foot of the cross. Whatever it is, bring and place it at the cross this evening because the Lord Jesus says this, Jesus says, put your trust in me. I will cover your shame. I will set you free from a past you cannot change. I will open up a future in which you can be changed. 
I give you joy everlasting. I will give you true happiness. Happiness that will far outlast money, marriage, and career, and even the Peak District. I am your heavenly groom. Come, come join the greatest party on earth. Just say, I do. Don't keep me waiting any longer. Amen. Well, as the musicians come up, let's just take a moment to be quiet and to prepare our hearts for the communion table when we will drink of the wine, eat of the bread, when we remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for each one of us, for he knows us by name. So let's be quiet for a moment. Father, we ask this evening that you would hear our heart cries. Meet us in our place and draw us to yourself, we ask in your name. Amen.